I was listening to a podcast this week, and it was of a, a, a friend of, of a friend of a friend. And as he was describing what was, had to be a crazy occurrence for him this week, he was in a, a very kind of exclusive neighborhood section of one of the large cities in America. And he was uh, down on the lower floor, and he got on an elevator, and he began to go up, and the elevator stopped, and the doors opened, and Barack Obama stepped into the elevator with him. Now, he was a little curious. There was, there was no... You know, Secret Service agents around, and there was no high intense security. And he thought it was interesting, but Barack Obama got onto the elevator with him, and he wasn't for sure what to say. But he, so he just remained silent, and and then went up another floor, and 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 Tom Brady got on the elevator with him, and so it was Barack Obama and Tom Brady. And as soon as I said Tom Brady, the ladies here uh, kind of perked up in the audience. I can I can tell. But Tom Brady gets on the elevator, and he's like. How is this? I've got Barack Obama. I've got Tom Brady, who's arguably the, the best quarterback that ever played the game. What's all, you know, he was just overwhelmed, remained silent. Went up on another floor. Michael Jackson got on the elevator. And then he knew something was up. Especially when he looked over at Bar- Barack Obama and his hands were white. And then he realized that Tom Brady had his jersey on and his helmet on, and he thought, ah, this is a costume party. They're headed up to to a costume party. And he he, he was just ruminating on that, and as you can imagine, uh, the the people in the audience listening just as I did, wow, Barack Obama, uh, Tom Brady, same elevator, what a conversation. Michael Jackson thing kind of gave it away. But his point was, and I thought it was a very real point, is a lot of times those of us who call ourselves Christ followers there's this external kind of costume that we wear. Where is the real proof of who we are in Christ? And what we're going to talk about today goes so much to the heart of what it means to live out the Jesus life and to literally show people that Christ is in our lives. And for those of you who are not Christ followers, this is going to be so encouraging to you because you're going to see something from the heart of Jesus that's going to make you want to follow Jesus in a way that says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there. Okay? All right? Now, we're going to build everything we can around a simple statement this morning. I'm going to put it up on the screen. And this, it's a very simple, simple statement. Here's what it says. You can tell a lot about a person's heart by who they make a place for at their table. You can tell a lot about a person's heart by who they make a place for at their table. I want you to imagine for a moment, uh, if you're sitting at a dining table, our favorite uh, place you eat, who are the people around the table that you feel most comfortable with? Who are the people that you're going to invite into that setting? More often than not, they're going to be family. You're going to be people that you're familiar with, that you're close to, the people that you enjoy being around. You've been in those uh, where you've been invited into a, a situation, maybe for a business, or somebody in the neighborhood invited you over. You don't know anybody, and it's, it's just uncomfortable, and you're not for sure you, what to say or how to say it. So usually when we think about a table, who's going to be at the table, it's going to be a place you're going to want the people closest to you, family and friends and people that you know very well. But... When you start thinking about this idea of reflecting your heart, who's at the table with you? 
table is a place of fellowship and friendship and and we're inviting people into your life who should be at that table with you now, Jesus constantly got in trouble because of his own table manners constantly got in trouble for that whenever he, Jesus would be uh, eating with someone almost in every occasion you read about Jesus is called out by a certain group of individuals and asked why in the world he would have those people at the table with him well, that's part of the story that Jesus uh, part of the narrative about Jesus own encounter in Luke chapter 15 which we're going to look at today and it's a, a very well-known story actually it's a trilogy of stories and out of it, we're going to introduce you a character to it that it, it's, it's one of those characters that you don't want to be, okay? With that in mind. So, let's pick it up in Luke chapter 15, and you can follow along with me up on the screen or in a, uh, on your device if you want to turn it on, or just uh, follow along up on it, like I said, on the screen. Luke 15, beginning at verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. And he eats with them. Now, two groups of people here. There's the, what the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're the spiritual giants, the people who are constantly, you know, they pray five times a day. They're, they're constantly reciting various kinds of, of religious verbiage. They're the, they're the, the, the kind of the, 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 uh, the filters, and they filter everybody in and out, and they look at everybody through a certain kind of lens. Now, the tax collectors uh, and the sinners, they were the people that were pushed out to the margins. They were the immoral. They were the filthy. In fact, they were the irreligious riffraff. They were so bad that they could not even go into the temple, the Jewish temple, to worship. Tax collectors were looked upon as traitors who had sold out to the Roman oppressors, and they were hated by the people. Sinners, just pure filth in terms of the eyes of the so-called spiritual giants. So they would call Jesus out, and they would say to him, why are you even associating with people like this? These, these people that, that are they're so corrupt at the core. And Jesus, every time, instead of apologizing... Jesus would step into it and he would say, let me just tell you, these are my people. These are my people. And then in response to in this particular situation, Jesus tells this trilogy of, of short stories. He talks about, in the first part of it, it talks about a lost sheep. And he describes this, this shepherd who leaves 99 who are safe and he goes out and hazards his own life to find that sheep that has wandered off, even to the point uh, of personal risk and cost. And they find it and bring it back home and they celebrate it. There was a lost coin which represented a kind of an endowment and, and it searches diligently until they find that coin and they find it and gather everybody together and they celebrate. And then the final part of it we're probably more familiar with, a father had two sons and one of the sons did the unthinkable, it was scandalous in that day and time, went to his father and said, I want you to give me my inheritance. And basically what he said, I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. In fact, I want to live as if you're dead to me. I don't want you to be a part of my life, so just give me what's mine. Now, the typical response of a son had done that in that Jewish culture would have been to take the son out and literally stone him to death. 
But this father, instead of doing that, went out literally and sold part of his own property to give the son the money that he said that was his. And then we know how the story gets played out. The, the son goes off and he, he does just crazy things, ruins his life. And with just a, the Bible describes it as riotous living. You can use your imagination and fill in the blank of what that might be. And he does that. And then the son, the Bible says, literally came to his senses, which means that he finally kind of woke up one day and he said, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? I just need to go back to my dad and just say, hey, just make me one of your servants, hired servants. I don't deserve to be anything. I don't deserve anything from you. Now, understand that when this son starts to coming home, everybody in that community knows what the boy did to his dad, basically saying, I wish you were already dead. And I don't want you to be a part of my life. I want you, you're dead to me. And they were surprised by the father's response by letting him go and giving him his inheritance. For the son to come back home, he would have to come back through that same village to get to his father. And one of the most beautiful scenes in all of the Bible of Jesus' stories is this father who begins to run towards his son and literally runs through the gauntlet of the village before the boy gets to the village and has to walk through the embarrassment of what's happened to his life. And for a father to run at that particular day and time, they had long flowing robes. He would pull his robes up and would bare his legs, which again was unheard of. This father ran through the gauntlet for his son so he wouldn't have to run through it himself. And once he got there, he, his son starts his speech about, Dad, I'm so sorry, I messed up so bad. I, I'm not asking you to take me back. Just make me one of your hard servants. And before the son could finish his speech, his dad just throws his arms around, smothers him, kisses, puts a robe on him, puts shoes on his feet, puts a ring on his finger and says, you're back. That's all that matters. You're forgiven. You're restored. You're my much-loved son. And usually that's where we end the story with Jesus. Ah, but there's one more character. There's, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And that's the other brother, okay? The other brother. So let's pick up the story there. And we're going to pick it up actually... If you want to just uh, look down at, beginning at verse 25, all right? Verse 25. It says, meanwhile, oh, by the way, got to make sure you get this part. The father not only embraced his son, but he brings him back and he calls the entire community together, throws out this massive party and celebration for him. Everybody is there. Everybody is there except who? The older brother. All right, let's pick it up. Begin at verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out, pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, can't even call him my brother, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, that's an exaggeration, that's kind of making it as worse as it can be, you killed the fatted calf for him. So you hear this son 
You hear him and you, what you pick up in this son's response is what often people who uh, is described and depicted by the elder son is the way a lot of people oftentimes within religious circles have a tendency to respond to people who are outside their circle of acceptance. And so what I want to do, and, and as we're walking through this, I want to just talk about some of the characteristics of this elder brother. And the question I want to ask you to think about is, is there an elder brother in you? Is there an elder brother in you? And as we're walking through this, it, you may say, well, no, I don't see that in me. Then, all right, then mark it down and say, I don't want to ever see that in me. Okay? So we're going to walk through some of these characteristics of this elder brother. Keep in mind, Jesus is responding to a group of spiritual giants, quote-unquote, who are criticizing him for hanging out with imperfect, messed-up, fully broken people. All right? You got that picture. So he tells this story. You think the story's over, and then he introduces this elder brother to make the point even stronger. Okay? So let's take a look at this. As you're reading through this and as you were listening and going back over these verses and this part of this story, here's this elder brother who's been working in the fields. He's missed the responsibility. He's, he's constantly doing everything that he's supposed to do as a, as a good son should do. And he comes back and he, he hears this you know, crazy party going on. The whole community's there. It's very expensive the best of the best, no, no cost is spared, to celebrate this kid's coming home, his brother who wasted everything. And so his response in this moment is basically, hey, look, how is it that he can go out and mess up his life? I'm here, I've been right by your side. I've, I've, day after day, you, I, I've been faithful to you, I've been good to you. How is it how is it that you're throwing a party for him? You've never even once thrown anything, even a small nature, for me. Father has to go out and try to plead with him to come in. So what's the, what is he basically, what's the, what's the attitude, the obstacle here that you see in the elder brother? Here, here's the first kind of obstacle, and we're going to mark at least four of these. The first obstacle is this. It's a hidden obstacle. It's a... What about me mindset? What about me mindset? How come you're not taking care of me? How come you're not meeting my needs? How come you're not honoring me? What about me? My life ought to, my, my, my life is going so very well. Why is it that you can't take time out to, to take care of me? What about me and there's some bitterness and some resentment is there one of the attitudes that sometimes gets into a lot of Christ followers hearts not necessarily intentionally but over time it develops you begin to think that everything that the church does should always be about you my preferences about what I need in my life at my particular time in my life what about me Part of my early part of uh, doing ministry, I was a youth pastor for almost 10 years. We had a student group of anywhere from 250 to 300 teenagers that would show up every week. 
We had our own service and we would reach out, reach out, reach out to students who would, would come. I remember gathering after one particular uh, time where we had had so many people from the outside come in to uh, one of our student activities and our outreaches and, and we were together and I was bringing our leadership together to talk about and to celebrate what an incredible time we had had. And before I could even start the, the, the gathering and the meeting, uh, one of the, uh, the lead workers said, you know, I get all of this, but why is everything that we're always doing always about reaching people that don't come to our church? When are you going to start taking care of our kids? When are you going to start building things around them? I'm, all, I'm, I'm glad that you're trying to do that, but don't you think you, you should spend some time taking care of us? And so the whole celebration, suddenly all the air was taken out because the question, what about me? What about us? I've been doing this for 45 years. That ages me, I know. But I've been doing it long enough that the reoccurring challenge that you have in most gatherings that call themselves a church, that over time it becomes a what about me. It becomes insider focused. It becomes all about me, all about this. Don't ever let that happen at the well. What about me? That's the father. I mean, that's the elder speaking to his father in that matter. You're not providing for me. And then notice something in the scripture. It says this, this is how the, the, the elder brother describes himself, the son, the older brother. All these years I've been slaving for you. All these years I've been slaving for you. In other words, he's saying... I didn't really do this because I love you and respected you. I did it so I could get what was mine. I did it to earn something. I did it to, to get your favor. Not out of love for you, but what I deserve. <laughs> Here's a second kind of obstacle that will get in the way. What about me attitude? The second obstacle would be this. A joyless and mechanical relationship with God. Joyless and mechanical. What does that mean? It means that you do what you do. You live out your life as a Christ follower, quote unquote, because you've forgotten what it was like not to have Christ in your life. Over time, go back before you gave your life to Christ. Imagine your life without Christ. And go back to what that was like. Over time, it just becomes duty, it becomes responsibility. Don't ever let that happen to you. Don't ever forget where you were and all that Christ has done to bring you to where you are and his current work in your life. Don't ever lose sight of that. But this elder brother, he says, I've been slaving. I've been carrying out all of these responsibilities. And then you'll notice in verse 30, he says, but when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fatted calf for him. And what does he do there? He, he takes on a, a sense of one-up. He's down, he, this son of yours. He doesn't even give him the respect of calling him in anything other than this son of yours. Look, Dad, look at this. And when he says look, what he's basically saying, Dad, you're, open your eyes. This is such a, this is, you're, you're acting stupid. Dad, open your eyes. What are you getting involved with the, this son of yours again? there's a sense of condescension here's a third hidden obstacle that many times keeps us 
from reaching out to the people that are far from God. A moral superiority and a judgmental spirit. This son of yours. Now, judgment is not whenever somebody calls you out for something in your own personal life and says, hey, you need to quit that. that that's not judgment. I've had people do that in my life, and I need that in my life. But judgment is when somebody calls you out with a sense of superiority and condescension without compassion. Judgment is when you adopt a, a position and a posture of putting people down. You project the worst onto people. You always make the other guy the bad guy. You're easily offended when anyone uh, dares to care about them and question you. You carry around a negative judgmental spirit masked as a, uh, a, a, a veneer of piety. That was, the, was this older brother. So watch out for that attitude of moral superiority. And then finally... <laughs> There, there's a, you look at this son and there's a part of this story that sometimes we kind of forget. And part of this is the, uh, probably maybe at the uh, heart of this story as it relates to the elder brother. I want you to lean in especially to this part. For the son to be restored to full rights and privileges of a son who's wasted his inheritance who is going to have to pony up? Who is it going to cost the most? The older brother. Because what's left is the brothers. And now the son, the, his younger brother, who went out and wasted everything, being brought back in means it's going to cost him. The only way he can come back as full rights of the son is if the older brother says, sure, and you can have part of what's mine. He has to pay the cost. This older brother gets that. And what's keeping the older brother from moving towards the son, the younger brother, is it's going to cost for reconciliation. It's going to take from his inheritance. So here's a fourth obstacle. There's a calculated unwillingness to get involved, to take action. Calculated unwillingness. I like the way Tim Keller put it. The father cannot forgive the younger brother except at the expense of the elder brother. He is the one that must bear the cost of reconciliation. Now there's one other part of this that you're going to notice about the... Uh, about the older brother that I want to point out. In every one of the other stories, when there was a lost sheep, the shepherd went out and searched for it till he found it and brought it home. In the story of the lost coin that Jesus told, search diligently, someone searched diligently till they found the coin and restored it. When the younger son went off and went to a far country, the father didn't go after him. And that's an interesting part of the story. Why didn't the father go after him? Because the father wasn't the father's responsibility 
it was the elder brother's responsibility and he refused to go after him. Because he didn't want to get involved. He didn't want to get involved in it. He didn't, uh, he didn't want to go through all the challenge of what it means to put his own personal life and reputation at risk. It was the elder brother's responsibility. Now, one of the things that happens in church plants often is what we just did. <laughs> and that's fine. I, I, I'm going to pause here, push pause. What you all are doing and the effort you're making to reach out throughout all of Nashua and greater, there can be no greater opportunity and investment of your life. And what, what you do week after week. Because what it is basically saying, we will bear the cost and the weight of making sure that every prodigal child, every prodigal son, every person who is lost, far from God, we will do everything they, we can to make sure that this is a place that they feel like is home. And we'll run after them, we'll pursue them, we'll, take, we'll bear the cost, we'll do whatever we've got to take, whatever it takes. Go back over those four obstacles for a moment. And again, see if any of this is in you. Hey, what about me? What about my preferences? Why don't you take care of me? What about me? A second. The second is whenever you have a, you've forgotten what it was like to experience grace and forgiveness and God's goodness in your life saving you. And so now it's just kind of this joyless, mechanical responsibility living out and you've lost that, that sense of his saving work in you. And the third, a moral superiority and judgmental spirit towards people. Don't you do this? Come on, be honest. If you're a Christ follower, you ever seen somebody, somebody in your circle or somebody's in friends, and they start telling you about their life, and you go, wow, what a mess. What a mess. You've forgotten you're a mess too. Still needs to be experiencing God's saving grace every day. And then final, a calculated, intentional unwillingness to take action. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to bear the weight and the cost of any of this. Now let's bring the story back. Let's close it out. The father goes back out, verse 31, and he goes out. What does the elder son, the older son says, the younger, the younger son er, earlier in the story left home and said, I don't want to be a part of this family. I don't want to sit at the table. I'm out of here. Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Now the older brother says, I don't want to sit at the table. I don't want, I don't want to go in and celebrate this son of yours. What, is, what does the father do? He goes out. My son, very the most tender term you can use in the Greek language for son. You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this, this brother of yours, 
was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We've got to celebrate that. We've got to celebrate that. I want you to take you to the very opposite as we close. We've given you the four hidden obstacles. What if it looked like this instead? These are the four things you want to characterize your heart. Let's look at them, these four things. I'm just going to walk through them. You have a conscious awareness of the world's brokenness. You can't get away from it. You're around it, and it, it breaks your heart. I came to Boston for the first time in 1985 to visit a friend. My wife and I came in February, and when we came to Boston, we were just going to hang out with our friend. And as we walked through the streets of the city, and he told us about the, the lostness in the city, God gripped our heart. We could never shake it off. That's why we're here today. Couldn't get away from it. Let it grip your heart. People you work with, people down the street in the neighborhood. One of our church planners just recently moved to Hyannis, and we went down to visit him the other day, and, and we were just spending time with he and his family. How you doing? Getting acquainted and all the rest. And he said, we've got 17 houses on our block with us. We've already met every single one of them, and they now call us pastor. Who are the people on the street where you live? Do they know your name? Do they know who you are? Have a brokenness. Second, you go out of your way to engage those in need. You go out of your way. Third, you live for the joy of seeing lives rescued and redeemed. You live for that. Fourth, you get involved even though you know it will be costly and messy. My wife and I both live, uh, we, well, obviously we live together. Um, we have for 46 years now. We live in Jamaica Plain, one of Boston's 23 neighborhoods. And um, we live in what used to be a single resident, resident, and now there's four apartments in it. We have the, the fl uh, lower floor apartment, and then there are other, three other people, three other uh, tenants. Uh, right above us is a couple we've gotten to know, and they're very skilled, gifted young professionals. Uh, they live together. Um, and then uh, above... That one, is, there is a uh, same-sex couple live together. And then above that, there's a young, young couple that doing some further education, master's level and, uh, from out on the West Coast. Young couple living together. Uh, next to us, next door to us, is uh, uh, a family that's been there for something like 20-plus years. But their worldview is just everything that our worldview isn't. And next to them is a couple who we've gotten to know, and they're Unitarian Universalists, and they basically don't believe in a lot of anything. And we're right in the heart of that. And so um, Gil and I said, hey, this is our mission. This is where it starts here. And so we have had them into our apartment. We've created meals and events. I will tell you that it has been, like, awkward, Especially when they say, so tell us what you do. And these days, evangelicals don't have a great reputation. 
And so they, they come into our home, uh, and they see, of course, certain signs that indicate certain things about who we are. Family and faith are a little bit everywhere in our apartment. <laughs> they always bring certain things into our apartment. We would never bring it to our apartment. Um, and yet, I'm just telling you. We also, oh, by the way, we had one other. She's from, she's a Nepalese, and she's, um, she's Buddhist. That's who we've had in our apartment now, like three or four different times. It's been so cool. It has been, we love it. We had a Palm Sunday brunch. So we invited them in. And the, and the question was, we get the brunch part, what's the Palm Sunday thing? And so I was able to share the gospel. In a way, didn't use all of our language. We just talked about the person of Jesus, what he means to us, and then we would say, hey, Part of what we do is we talk to God because we believe he hears us because he loves us. So I'm going to pray before we have a meal together. Gil and I now, the re, we, we recently had to renew our lease. And it's, it's, it's kind of crazy how much you have to pay for an apartment in Boston. And as we were getting ready, do we renew the lease? Do we renew the lease? And we're looking at it back and forth. And we both said, Yes, because we got work to do. And not work in the sense of we're going to save those people who are far from God. No, God's given us a love for them. We can't wait to see them cross the line of faith and experience his transforming grace. And with all due respect to you and a lot of people who are in church, that's our greatest joy. And when that happens in my life, I know I'm getting at the heart of Jesus. That's what this church is all about. As a Christ follower, that's what your life is all about. That's the proof more than anything else. The more mature you grow as a Christ follower, the more your heart will break for those who are far from God. Okay? Well, you know one of the crazy things about this story? There's no ending to it. We don't know how it turned out. I guess Jesus meant for us to finish it. To finish the story in our own personal lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, as we think about the Father in this story, that it is the reflection of your love for us and how that you searched, ran, rescued, pleaded for our sake and how that when Christ, he disrobed himself on the cross, he bore our sin, paid the full price so we could sit at the table with him so we could know him. And we thank you that even as we do as Christ followers, we come to celebrate the, the table, the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the wine. That Father, is a reminder to us that we've been invited to the table because of the price that Jesus paid 
for the joy set before him. We can sit at that table and we want more people at that table, not less. And we want all of you poured into all of us so that we can pour it out into all those you bring into our world. Thank you for this simple reminder. Father, help us never ever to reflect the elder brother, but to always reflect the father. Thank you that every person in this room is loved by you. And we pray that if there's one person, two, three, four, five people in this room who's yet to know how much you love them, may this story remind them that you go all out for the person who is far from you. You never stop, never, never stop pursuing us. We love you and thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray.